If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. At least with Canada's ballooning population, there is more of us to huddle around for warmth. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Everybody. All right. Uh, it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on, lots to chat about. Feel free uh, to uh, engage and be a part of it, as always. Uh, this is uh, no surprise, but some of the headlines we're looking at uh, this afternoon. Ontario Hospital Association says that the rapid rising population is directly uh, contributing to the health care crisis, the wait times in emergency rooms, and uh, and so on, that it is uh, directly related. Those are the their words, and uh, something has to be done in order to slow this down and stop exhausting the systems uh, that we have that uh, take care of us all. Um, and, and we, again, remember this, post-COVID-19, the provinces and the feds all work together to try to help health care and, and do it with, with what we had learned from a pandemic. And and we were really starting to make some headway. And then, boom, too many people, too fast, and everything is exhausted. Uh, again, again, as if it was another global pandemic. Here's hoping another one of those isn't around the corner. Uh, nothing to suggest there is, by the way. So on the heels of that, the Quebec Premier, Premier Legault, has sent a letter to the Prime Minister saying, saying that Quebec has reached a breaking point. Quebec has reached a breaking point. Too many people are coming in, not enough services, and the PM's not listening. He's not tapping the brakes because it equals votes for Justin Trudeau. So there you go. Uh, so, you know, we are where we are, and, you know, people are wondering why things are stressed. It's not, you know, it's not because governments and, and agencies aren't doing the best they can. It's because we've got too many people uh, trying to get too many services. Just the exact same issue we're having with housing, with health care, with all of this. And it's frustrating, especially to know that two years ago, the Prime Minister was warned about all of this and didn't listen. He didn't listen. And many ask why. Look at the polls. He's tanking. And every person that comes in, they feel is a guaranteed vote for them. It is socialism that has gone mad. He has taken this once great left of center socialist, or sorry, left of center uh, political party, the Liberal Party, and veered it off to the extreme left with the NDP. And we have what we have after eight years of uh, semi-socialism. Uh, but anyway, uh, it is what it is, and everyone's complaining, and it seems whether it's within his own uh, tent or outside, other industries, investment, healthcare, education, what have you, uh, the wheels are falling off. Hence the, uh, the phrase, the country is broken. Uh, and there's a great, uh, again, Graham Mackay did another great political cartoon in the spec. And, you know, I'm not sure it's the country that's broken. It's the prime minister that's broken. The country will do fine. The country will go on and, and row down the river as if we all, as if we always have the way we always have. But it's the pre, it's the prime minister that needs replacing. It's the government of the day that is broken. 
Uh, it's not the country that's broken. It's this is what we're feeling as a result of a hollowed out government. There is just nothing left there. And uh, left, right, up, down, they can't seem to do anything right. They have lost control of what is going on. And now we are seeing this and people try to push it off, disguise it as other things, you know, uh, screaming at the governments of the day. Uh, you're, you're behind on your housing. You're not reaching your goals. Well, nobody across the country is reaching their goals. Ontario is not the only province not to reach its goals. And all we have to do is listen to the neighbors uh, to our east in Quebec who are saying, we have reached a breaking, a breaking point. We cannot take any more people in. It's as simple as that. So, um, you know, how we got here, you know, <laughs> it's the same old broken story. So uh, the country is fixable. The country is fixable. What is not fixable is this government. They are done. They are toast. And if the prime minister would put his ego aside, he would at least step out of the way and give the once great liberal party that has veered so far to the left, you can't tell it from the NDP, uh, to give them at least a fighting chance in the next election. So uh, it is what it is. His vision is what it is. Uh, but he ain't one of us. That's for sure. We've certainly been experiencing some cold weather of late, although today's certainly a lot nicer. And you don't see a lot of people out walking the pets, walking the dog when the weather gets this cold. Or if they're doing it, they're doing it when the sun's up early in the day or earlier in the day. So, uh, you know, when is it too cold to take the dog for a drag? Uh, is there a point where, uh, no, it's best to stay inside? And what are some of the precautions, some of the signs to look for uh, if perhaps your dog is freezing? Let's bring in Michelle McNabb, Director of Community Outreach and Animal Programs, Hamilton Burlington SPCA, and here now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Absolutely. I'm great. Thanks for having me. So what is the threshold, Michelle, for when it's too cold? All right, I wouldn't bother taking Fido out. Absolutely. So, you know what? Same with people. It's really sort of dependent on the breed of your dog, I would say. If you've got one of those those husky types with the big, thick fur coat, obviously sure. they're going to tolerate that colder weather a little bit longer than, say, you know, your short-haired boxer kind of dog. Um, and certainly we want to make sure if you are going out and we understand exercise is super, super important, regardless of the weather. But you know what? A coat on your dog is certainly going to help. Um, maybe some boots on their feet if they will tolerate that. And certainly making sure you're walking during the day where it's a little bit warmer as opposed to waiting until the sun has gone down and keeping it a little bit shorter. So while you may still want to go out, it's maybe just a quick around the block, a couple of sniffs here and there, and then back inside where it's warm. Yeah, because especially if you've got a bigger dog, they got to get out every day. They go nuts. They, my dog just stares at me and gives me the guilt trip <laughs> if I'm not like, what, what are you doing? Where are you? Come on, let's go. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the outfits. And because uh, we have this discussion all the time, at what point do you put on boots or whatever? Uh, and, and we did get our dog to put on boots. And I, I, I trust, uh, I guarantee everybody who tries this, uh, keep the, keep the camera handy, keep videoing it because it is quite funny. <laughs> they look like they look like Bambi in deep snow it's hilarious uh, but anyways sure. so what's the advantage and is there an advantage to the boots how you know and again how long does that extra give you for sure yeah so I would say again it depends on your dog some of them are just not going to tolerate those boots right and it's more yeah. trouble than it's worth but if they're not going to wear something on their feet we want to make sure once we get them back home that those feet get a really good wipe with a nice dry towel the salt that we use of course to stop us from slipping 
can be very harsh on the pads of their feet. So making sure once you're home, nice little wipe off, that there isn't a little piece of salt, you know, lodged in there, that sort of thing. And, of course, watching out for really icy patches when you're out there because, of course, that's going to make your dog slip a little bit more and make the, the walk a little bit less enjoyable. And lots of, you know, sort of indoor activities that you can try with your dog as well on those days when it is really, really cold. Puzzle feeders and enrichment feeders are great tools to keep them active. Setting up a little obstacle course inside your home, you know, lure them around some chairs, over some cushions, that sort of thing. On those days when it's just really feeling bitter and that wind is just far too cold. So when do you know that it's too cold for your dog? What sort of signs uh, will we see? Because, again, uh, we got a bigger dog and likes to run in the snow, but uh, always mm-hmm. concerned about the paws, even, you know, by about a half an hour period. Absolutely. And I would say if you are feeling cold, your dog is feeling cold. So huh. you kind of want to judge it by that as well. Um, again, short little bursts, even if it meant you did a couple of short walks a day as opposed to one long walk a day. That would always be preferable. And, you know, you're going to see your dog is going to look uncomfortable. Maybe they're holding up their foot when they're outside. They don't necessarily right. want to walk on that pavement, that sort of thing. So everybody knows their dog fairly well. Um, but again, if you're cold, head back home, warm up inside, you know, try again tomorrow. And is there anything specifically around paws you should be inspecting on a regular basis? You want to just make sure that there's no cuts or wounds. Again, that salt is very, very harsh, and it would be like you walking barefoot outside. Um, So, again, once you get them home, have a nice dry cloth available. Just wipe them down. Make sure there's nothing there. There's no cracks. There's no sort of open wounds, that sort of thing. Do all dogs like snow? No, not all dogs like snow. Mine personally love the snow, but if you've got one of those little chihuahua friends, chances are they don't love snow very much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess that, uh, again, just one look will pretty much, uh, you know, the common sense there. All right. So any other tips for uh, pet owners uh, as we uh, hit it? Although it is getting kind of milder now, but uh, in the cold weather, any other tips? Yeah, no, pretty much just, you know, keeping it simple. Again, when the sun is out, this would be a great time to go for a walk. Like you said, it's a little bit warmer today. So take advantage of those warmer moments. And on those days when it is just absolutely bitter, try an indoor activity, a little bit of tug of war, a puzzle feeder for their meal times, and keep them at least mentally active if they can't be fully physically active. What's a puzzle feeder? (laughs) So you can buy them at most pet stores. And they're actually, you would put the food, it depends on the feeder. There's a number of different options that you can find, but basically the dog has to work like a puzzle to find the food. So sometimes they have to open a little door. They have to move around a little bit. It just makes their mind work. Ours does, ours does that just going into the cabinet and helping himself. Uh, Michelle, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> Michelle McNabb with us, Director of Community Outreach and Animal Programs, Hamilton Burlington SBCA. Watch the pets in the cold weather. Michelle, thanks for the time. Be well. Absolutely. Have a great day. Car theft, we talk about it a lot. I'm sure you've heard about it uh, through friends or anecdotally. Somebody knows somebody who's had something stolen in their neighborhood. And amid a surge in auto thefts uh, in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, some insurance companies are now pushing owners uh, of highly targeted vehicles to install tracking devices. And I understand the Honda CRV is uh, one of the biggest. Let's bring in David Booth, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, here now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, in fact. 
You know, David, we've talked about this a lot. And, you know, my first thought when I'm hearing of this, because it seems like a great idea, why wouldn't everybody do this? Uh, why wouldn't they come installed from the factory this way? But my guess, you know, just reading the stories of, of, of how cars are stolen nowadays and the technology involved, if they can bypass your ignition system and, and your key fob and all that sort of stuff, can they or can't they easily bypass a, uh, a tracking device. You don't want the automaker to put in a tracking device, I don't think. Um, I actually had a webinar on last night. I uh, hosted it, and I had the uh, world's best hacker of automobiles on um, for about an hour. And it was very illuminating on how porous um, are the security systems in cars. Now, the the the, the tag systems, they, they are pretty good i mean they're separate from the uh, from the car system so if you hack into the car you're not necessarily you're not at all getting to these uh, tracking right. devices they're basically uh, uh, rfid devices that you can always track the car it um, hard not hard to jam them but the, you know you can't break into the car and get rid of the the tracking aspect of it which you right. could do if it was part of the system the other hand the, the downside of these systems is Oftentimes, I hear stories of uh, people who know where their car is, but the police don't respond to um, to the notification and go get the stolen car. Uh, for instance, the low-level thieves, what they do is they steal a car, then they just park it anonymously in a shopping center and watch it for a day. And if nobody comes for it, then they go back and they get it, and they take it and do whatever they were going to, uh, whatever. Uh, that way, either nobody's coming for the car if it is tracked, uh, tagged, or they aren't uh, coming for it despite the fact that it is tagged. Why are uh, police not you know, no, uh, involved if, for example, somebody has a device or a car with a device on it that's been stolen? I'm guessing not enough uh, services for the amount of devices. Why would they not go, hey, I know my car's parked in there and it's stolen. Can we go get it? Why would they say no? Um, overwork? Your guess is as good as mine as that, except that, yeah. I mean, why, when your stereo gets stolen out of your house, what are the chances of getting a cop to take the report? Usually you just take the report over the phone. You know, I yeah, mean, yeah. really, um, I, I don't know what to say to that one. I wish I did know the answer to that. But sip, like, for instance, the one thing you can't do is uh, for yourself, for instance, if the car was in a garage with a whole bunch of miscreants in it, go there and try to retrieve it for yourself. Even if you no. get through through to them, if there's some sort of altercation, um, you could be the one that's criminally responsible for that. So it's I, I, the tag thing is better than nothing. But the best thing we could do is make our cars more um, are are less theft prone. And I, that unfortunately has a little bit to do with us. I mean, you know, I mean, we want cheap cars, um, which means we uh, at the same time we want a lot of features. So, you know, they want keyless um, entry, but at least in the States, uh, they don't want to pay for immobilizers, which is why all those Kias and Hyundais in Chicago were getting stolen. You know, I mean, um, the other thing that's really obvious, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, what's happening now, I think thefts are going to get worse. Uh, the weakness 
in in auto security in the future will be all the apps like you know a mercedes me the thing right. that lets you go on your phone and open your car and right. um and uh and um and and maybe start the engine like through an app on your phone those things are as porous as sieves those are the really weak links um the hacker i had on um um on um uh on on my program last night uh he estimates that he could build an app so cheaply he could rent it out you know subscribe have people subscribe to it for $30 a month and he could that app would allow them to steal 80% of all the cars on the road or all the new cars that are connected um on the road today literally that's so what- not hard so, David, what can manufacturers do? Because then you say, you know, initially you said, well, you can't really let manufacturers do this because uh, if it's in the same system, then you compromise one, you'll have them both. What can a manufacturer do? It's going to be between manufacturers and uh, and, and and consumers as well. Uh, uh, from what I can gather on this, our need for um, apps and convenience right. and their need for constant connection with the right. car and the mm-hmm. data they claim they're going to be able to get out of it and uh, and sell that back to us. We've heard about that. Those two factors are driving all this connectivity and the race to that connectivity is outpacing the security. From the automaker's standpoint, they got to maybe slow down and do a better job of securing those lines. From the, the, uh, from the customer's uh, standpoint, they got we have to realize that all this hyper drive towards connectivity at as fast as you possibly can comes with a price. And that price is a greater vulnerability to auto theft. Uh, here's a probably naive question, David. If we went back to a key for an entry, does that make it any more difficult? A physical key like the old days? Uh, I, I, if they were coded keys like they were before, um, yes. I, I'm going to suggest that. The um, the what's going to happen is the same thing that happens on uh, when I log into my online banking is is a two tier security code thing where you know if you right. really want to unlock your doors and unlock your cars and everything else from an app you're also going to have to get a text message or a phone call um, from the provider to uh, to double check that you're the right person. And that, you know, you actually are on the phone, that the device is coming from the uh, the app uh, order is coming from the device um, that uh, is is registered to the owner. Uh, so, uh, honestly, if we're if we're going to have this massive connectivity, um, the, the, uh, that's I mean, this system is not perfectly secure, but it's a lot more secure than we have now. And I think uh, I think it's only time before it comes. Your thoughts on insurance companies now pushing owners to get these uh, tracking devices installed? Well, I find it rather amusing um, that all the uh, uh, insurance companies uh, in Canada, and two of them that were mentioned in the CBC article um, that we all read, um, that said that they were telling people of certain cars they had to get these tag things or mm-hmm. face an increase in their insurance. Those same companies offer, uh, they were Desjardins and Bel Air Direct. They both offer what sort of pay as you go 
um, um, insurance rates where if you drive safer, okay, and right. drive slower and brake gentler, you'll get a premium on your on your on your on your insurance. Um, wh- why that's ironic is both of those systems require that you put in a dongle connected to your car that plugs into your um, um, uh, main ECU so mm. they can track you and how you're driving and everything else. And right. that dongle, they're notoriously for being very weak with cybersecurity. They actually make your car easier to break into. Well, well there so, you go. So. David Booth. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. David Booth, senior writer, postmedia driving, driving.ca. Uh, some insurance companies pushing owners to get uh, tracking devices uh, to avoid theft. David, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You've heard of the SEBA loans that are coming due today. Well, sort of, part of the program. Uh, obviously, during the uh, the global pandemic, businesses shut down. Uh, eligible businesses were offered up to $60,000. Uh, and if they made the payment back by the deadline, which is today, 20000 of that would be forgiven. And then as of Friday, any outstanding loans will convert to three-term, uh, three-year term loans and subject to 5% per year. And and today is the deadline if you want to take advantage of that $20,000 forgiveness. Let's bring in Ryan Malo, Vice President of Legislative Affairs for Ontario Canadian Federation of Business, Independent Business, and with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, you as well. Good afternoon. So this is, uh, the deadline is for if you want to be forgiven or uh, allowed that $20,000, uh, and then from there it goes on as a standard loan. Is that accurate? That's correct. So when this loan was established all the way back in 2020, the really attractive part of it for uh, almost a million small business owners uh, across Canada was that there was a forgivable element. And that is what today's deadline is. If you're able to pay by today, that forgivable element is in play. If you cannot, then this becomes a three-year term loan starting tomorrow. So how many have paid? How many have not? So we're sort of waiting to see the final numbers. We last assessed this in December, and it was about a little over a third, I think around 37, 40% had already paid. There was another 30, 33% that were sort of in the process of refinancing, figured they'd be able to get the money together. And then the remainder, um, which represents about 200,000 businesses uh, across the country, felt that they were in jeopardy of missing today's deadline. Uh, is it fair to the third that have already paid if you keep extending this? So certainly understand the the argument for it. And we knew that if the government were to extend it, that there would be some frustration out there. But the reality is a lot of those businesses that have been unable to pay are amongst those hardest hit industries over the last three years. I mean, let's keep in mind, especially here in Ontario, there were businesses in hospitality, gyms, event spaces that lost upwards of 400 days to full closure, let alone the capacity restrictions and the, the color codes and the numbers and all the other uh, different kinds of reopenings that Ontario went through um, and really haven't seen business uh, return to normal. And that's why we were seeking out that extension, not to wipe out the loan, but just get a little bit more time uh, so those businesses could get the money together to pay it off. For those who could do this, was it would it be would it have been worth? Because you see lots of financial institutions offering this to bridge the gap and uh, pay that off now to forgive the twenty grand, and then I guess do another loan. Is that has that been advantageous to business? 
So I, I think for a lot of them, it has. Now, those loans are coming in at much steeper uh, interest uh, rates than the, yeah. the 5% that the government is offering. But getting that access to that 20000 forgivable offsets that hit uh, a little bit. Right. So we know that there's a lot of businesses that have been refinancing. We also know, though, there's a lot of businesses that have been trying to refinance and just haven't been approved by the banks or a third lender. Right. Um, I was talking to a business owner earlier today that has uh, you know, managed to scrounge the money together through friends and family. We think that's happening uh, a fair bit. So we know businesses are trying, but not all of them are going to be able to refinance. So what's the solution in your mind? A- another extension for this? So what we would have liked to have seen is, is another extension through the end of this year. We felt that that would be enough time. Uh, the reality is that around you know, four o'clock on deadline day, um, it it's not going to happen. We're not we're not anticipating an 11th hour reprieve here uh, right. from the federal government. So now it turns to what else can the federal government do importantly to get some money back into business owners' pockets and reduce the cost of doing business. And a really good start for businesses here in Ontario is there is $1.3 billion out of $2.5 billion in carbon tax revenues that the feds have promised and have not returned. That would be a good place to start to get some money back as we look at other cost-cutting measures. Hmm. Ryan, what do you think the fallout is going to be from this week and this deadline in the next week or so? Are you going to hear this? Uh, I think we're going to we're going to hear it pretty significantly, not just over the course of the week, but over the course of the months and the the year ahead. I mean, there are we know there are some businesses that are closing their doors over this. We have heard from them and there will be more. That's a reality. But even those businesses that are able to sort of carry that loan over the next couple of years, this is something that's going to be weighing on them. This weighs on uh, retention and employee investment decisions. This weighs on expansion decisions, product offering decisions. That $60,000 for a small business is significant and is going to play in. So we'll be watching uh, those elements closely. Wouldn't be great in the best of economic times. It certainly isn't that. So we think it's going to pinch. Uh, I was watching, you know, you've been reading lots of stories anecdotally about business people that have, that are going through this. I remember seeing one interview where one person said uh, she thought it was a big mistake for them to even take the loan out and that this is just de- de- uh, uh, delayed the inevitable for her business and it would have been better for her business to have gone bankrupt a couple of years ago. Do you hear anything similar to that? Is What's your reaction? We've, I, I'm, it's, it's certainly a sad story. I've, I've seen that one as well. And we certainly heard that sentiment from, from some businesses, um, sort of as we've approached the deadline and as, you know, the, the extension became increasingly unlikely. I think the reality around this program is that this was a needed thing. This was a good program, uh, when it was launched. But when it was launched back in April of 2020, we were anticipating a pandemic that lasted maybe an additional month. You know, when we first locked down, we thought it would be a yeah. few weeks, not, three years of rotating lockdowns. That's the reality we faced. And that's why we wanted to see the government adjust uh, over time because the pandemic adjusted over time. Ryan Malo, VP of Legislative Affairs for Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business. SIBA loans coming due today if you want forgiveness of that 20 grand. Ryan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. You as well. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail today by John Ibbotson's China's uh, China's looming decline could be a threat to the world. Uh, The article says the Communist Party's incompetence has worsened a continuing demographic catastrophe in China, undermining hopes for its future. The world faces a threat not from a rising power 
powerful China, but from a China that is disaffected and in inevitable decline. National Bureau of Stats of Statistics reported their population decreased in 2023 by 2 million people. Canada's increased by one. They're down by two. To talk more about all of this and how this affects the rest of us, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald laurie Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. It's good to speak with you, Scott. So is is this all about the size of a country? Why is this so significant? Well, I, I mean, I think that, that when you have an enormous country like China that's heading into a situation where, you know, within my lifetime, you're going to have 700 million people working and 500 million people who are old people, pensioners, that means that the economy will be in trouble and that impacts on the global economy and very much impacts on the stability uh, within China. So, of course, we should be worried about it. And the problem really was that in 1980, when I was a Mm. university student in China, the government put in a draconian policy that limited married couples to one child. And, you know, this was enforced brutally. You had to apply to the state to have a child if they checked women to see if they were pregnant or not every month. And if you know, there was a pregnancy out of plan, so to speak. Abortion was inevitable. And the result is that we now have a situation where the the demographics are screwed up. And, you know, we already know that, that something like 30% of young people in China between high school graduation about age 25 are unable to find any kind of employment at all. And now you're having a stress placed on on the demographics of the situation where there are too many old people and not enough young people to keep that economy going. And because China sees itself as what one might say a civilizational state, in other words, they're not prepared to accept people of other ethnicities into full citizenship in China, unlike Canada, where you know we welcome a lot of immigrants so that there's some young people to pay my elderly pension. Um, mm-hmm. This is going to lead to to a demographic disaster, and there doesn't seem to be any turning it round. And the government, in its usual way, is dealing with it by increasing the the propaganda that women should consider staying home and producing babies to help uh, build so- the socialist state. Well, you know that stuff doesn't work, and so um, you know you're you're it's just it's just a disaster waiting to happen. And leaving aside all the other politics and errors of the regime. The fact that they're not able to accommodate a rapidly aging population is really, really worrying. Uh, obviously, the, I remember when this happened in the 80s as well, and, and the chatter, the debate it was creating. The rest of the world pretty much predicted what would happen. Um, why didn't they, and how do they have credibility now on this issue? Well, I mean, I think that at the time... There was the idea that China was a very poor country and that they couldn't absorb um, um, more population. There just wasn't enough food being produced to feed more people. That was the official propaganda. But as you say, people who are experts in demography uh, understood that the government's policy in this draconian limitation of birth between 1980 and 2015 was going to come back to to bite them big time and this is what's happening you know so so it it, and i mean it was tragic too you know uh, just uh 
so many um, couples that wanted to have children weren't allowed to have them, and and people, you know, women would try and and hide somewhere in a remote mm. island or something to to give birth to a child, and then it would be found, and you know, there'd be a very late term abortion and that kind of thing. It 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 really was a a, a bad time. I remember one of my classmates. And his wife had twins. Oh, my goodness, everyone was so envious of the good fortune they had to have two children instead of just the one. Hmm. Um, uh, how, do, how does the Chinese population interpret this now? How do they look at this now? Because there's many Chinese that were old enough to live through all of this. They see the results. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that certainly for the older generation, it's a cause for concern because, you know, China's a ostensibly a communist country, but it's not like uh, the NDP on steroids or something. They don't really have mm-hmm. social programs. The expectation is that old people will be looked after by their children. And, you know, if you have, if you don't have children, you know, if you don't have children to to care for you in old age, then you're you're really in a, in a difficult uh, situation. Aside from, you know, traditional Chinese culture where the expectation is that there will be sons to continue the family name and continue the clan, and and if those aren't delivered, it's it's tragic. They referred to um, childless men as bare branches, and there's an additional problem here, which I should have brought up, which is that when they limited to one child, a lot of um, couples engaged in uh, in selective abortion, so. Uh, they wanted to have a son, which means that there's a demographic imbalance as well of more men than yeah, women. Yeah. And so men at the lower end of the social scale have been unable to get married. And uh, and that, you know, further exacerbates the the problem of, of uh, demographic uh, disaster as you're getting too many oldsters and not enough youngsters. I remember as well, too, Charles, 20 years ago, couples here adopting little Chinese girls who were, uh, uh, I, I guess, taken from their parents or given a better life here. I'm not sure what situation, but I remember there was a wave of that after this all happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, those children, those girls were abandoned. You know, the, yeah. the, the couple gave birth to a, to a girl. They needed a son to carry on um, to the family name and because sons care for their parents in old age and girls marry out and become essentially the property of the uh, of the husband's family that this was in response to people you know leaving children at in at the doors of hospitals with a note which was absolutely heartbreaking to the couple who had to abandon their child but but that's why you know the adopted uh, Chinese uh, kids here in Canada are, you know, ninety nine percent young young girls because yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the boys weren't adopted out, but the girls were often just just left by the side of the road. It, it it's just heartrending. Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, China's uh, self inflicted population demographic situation. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Good to speak with you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now the interim ethics commissioner is involved in uh, the discussion around the Trudeau's family vacation in Jamaica at a family friend's house. 
resort rather that uh, it contributes to the Trudeau Foundation. And initially, the Prime Minister's office said, and, and again, nobody disagrees that the Prime Minister or, or any of these people don't deserve vacations. That's not the point. Uh, there's clarification here in what the Prime Minister's office said, or sorry, needed, and that is uh, initially that he would pay for his own way and then clarified or changed that to no, it was a free vacation. So uh, as this committee uh, convened, it now looks like the Interim Ethics Commissioner will make an appearance to decide exactly uh, or to find out exactly what he knew at this point. Let's bring in Duff, Con- uh, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He is here now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hope you are as well. Thank you. Uh, before we get to this stuff, I know you've even got questions about this uh, commissioner, uh, interim commissioner, and the way they were appointed. So let's get that out of the way. Yes, I mean, all we know is that they were handpicked through a Trudeau cabinet-controlled secret process. And, you know, that process could have included asking him what his enforcement policy was going to be. Is he going to let people off at a high rate? If so, great, here's the job for you because we want to be let off for our wrongdoing. So um, that's a big question. And as a result, when he appears before the committee, they shouldn't just be trusting uh, what he says about what uh, Trudeau sent him in terms of information prior to the trip. They should uh, say, we want to see the documents, the actual emails or any other record of communications between the the, uh, Trudeau, the prime minister's office and uh, the interim commissioner, because, you know, right now this guy is serving on a six month term. It's up, his terms up the end of February. He uh, may be wanting to serve for seven years and it'd be a great favor for uh, him to cover things up for the Trudeau cabinet. And they could return the favor by giving him a job for seven years that pays more than $200,000 a year. So this is an unethical situation. He's in a conflict of interest. And there's nothing barring him from disclosing those communications and nothing barring the prime minister from disclosing those communications so we can find out exactly what the ethics commissioner learned and when. And on an unethical situation around the ethics commissioner, that's that's frustrating right there. So what is the role of the ethics commissioner here? Uh, Because the spokesperson said they don't clear vacations, they just make sure the gift provisions are adhered to. So what does that mean? Well, they don't make sure that they're adhered to. They advise uh, anyone who calls them an MP or prime minister, cabinet minister, or or any uh, other top government official that's covered by the ethics laws. Uh, they advise them that these are the rules. They couldn't make instant rulings because one of the key rules is you can't accept a gift or a benefit or any advantage of any kind, directly or indirectly, and neither can your spouse. Uh, or your dependents, your kids that that still depend on you from anyone who uh, could be seen to be trying to influence you with the gift or the benefit. And they could never instantly determine that because they'd have to figure out, does this person have dealings with the government of any kind? And that's, there's secret lobbying is allowed. So they wouldn't be able to tell because of the loopholes in the lobbying law, whether the person has dealings with the government. Uh, And there's other ways to have secret dealings with the government. So, what they do is the, the person calls and then they tell them, these are the rules, these are the guidelines. If, if the gift or benefit could reasonably be seen to have been given to you to influence your decisions, then it's illegal. And then it's up to the office holder to do their due diligence 
and make sure they're following the rules. The ethics commissioner can't guarantee they won't be found guilty after the fact uh, because they, they can't make a ruling like that with, with such little information that they're usually given when an MP or minister calls them. So what will be the significance of the ethics commissioner appearing at this committee? Will we find out if he knew whether uh, the prime minister was paying for this or if, in fact, it was for free? Was he was he questioned when he thought they were paying for it and didn't know about the free part? Uh, will we find that out? Uh, we'll see what he does. He he and the prime minister should disclose the communication records right now. There is no requirement that the ethics commissioner keep those that information secret. Of course, if there's any really personal private information in the communications um, about his kids because it was a family trip or something like mm-hmm. that, then that could be withheld. But in terms of you know, what he told the commissioner in terms of who was paying for the trip, that's not private personal information. And uh, there's nothing in the, in the federal ethics law that prohibits the commissioner from disclosing that. There's nothing in the federal open government law that prohibits the prime minister from disclosing it. And there's no loophole in that law that allows him to keep it secret. So um, if he comes and says, I can't tell you because it's confidential, that's a false claim. If the commissioner claims that when he's questioned by the committee. He can disclose the information, and he should. And so can the prime minister, and he should as well, and do it immediately. That will clear up what happened, actually. So we're not dealing with this this kind of he said, she said, uh, unclear situation. So what what do you anticipate happening after the impair, after the appearance of the interim ethics commissioner? Do you think there'll be more questions than answers? Uh, I hope not. If the commissioner, he, he's com- said before committees, testified before this committee twice already in the fall and said, I'm going to be as open and transparent as, as possible. Well, he can disclose this information. So if he claims that he can't, then he's breaking his own pledge. Um, there'll still be big questions around his appointment and his terms coming up the end of February. He's going to be appearing in February. Um, has he been offered the, the long-term job, the cabinet's supposed to consult with opposition parties before making an offer to anybody who else has applied for the job that's qualified applications were due last may and conrad von finkenstein did not apply by last may he wasn't even contacted uh until later about taking the interim job um in terms of confirming taking the interim job so and he and he said that he had not contemplated taking the long-term seven-year term job so um, we'll see what happens and whether the Trudeau government continues playing dishonest and secretive games with uh, an unethical cabinet-controlled appointment process for the appointing the ethics commissioner. It is a layer you- cake of conflicts of interest, as unfortunately the enforcement system has been uh, for the last now uh, almost 20 years at the federal level. Uh, Canadians certainly have seen this story before. Why is it a big deal? Why should they care? They should care because the ethics rules are second only to the anti-bribery provisions in the criminal code at uh, setting out rules that ensure that politicians and government officials serve the public interest and are not protecting their friends, their family members, their party supporters, or other private interests. And if these rules are not enforced strictly and strongly and fairly, then politicians can get away with helping themselves, their family members, their party supporters, their friends, to the public's money. So it's really serious. This is the 
the second most important law after the anti-bribery provisions at ensuring that we actually have a democratic good government. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, Interim Ethics Commissioner, has been called to testify on Justin Trudeau's Jamaican vacation should happen towards the end of the month. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. Bye for now. You know, I really don't know why this is such a problem. Uh, because I have found the cell phone is the one greatest disciplinary tool that parents have. When parents are saying, well, how do you go and ask them? How do you do this? How do you get the phone off the kid? How do you? What? I found it very easy raising my kids with phones. And it was four simple words. Give me the phone. And sometimes I added a fifth now. And if you don't, there you go. There's your discipline. It's not sending you to your room. It's not grounded. Give me the phone. And I think this is the best way to discipline kids. So to all of a sudden say, well, you can't touch their phone, I don't get it, whether it's at home, at the dinner table, or even in the classroom. And maybe I'm just an old fart. Dr. Jay Olson with us, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Psychology, University of Toronto, Mississauga, is with us now. Jay, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, hi. So, Jay, obviously the Toronto District School Board is uh, calling for an update on their cell phone policy. It was approved on Wednesday night, and uh, they're trying to limit the, the use of the cell phone in the classroom to when it's needed just for schoolwork. Is that so difficult a task, Jay? Why is it so? Um, um, well, generally, I, I think that this is a, a smart idea. We know that. Um, uh, the more that you use your phone, generally the lower your uh, 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 grades are, and uh, and, and phones and phones can be very disruptive in in, in classes, affecting things like uh, um, attention and uh, and working memory and that. So I I feel like this is a, a smart idea having some kind of uh, general policy that talks about phone use in classrooms. Why are we just doing this now? Um, so. Um, since the pandemic, we've seen uh, basically across the world, there's been an increase in problematic smartphone use. And so this is when uh, smartphones negatively um, influence, influence your life. Um, and, so, and, and so more schools and, uh, and more countries are kind of setting uh, these guidelines as, as this problem is continuing to grow. And what sort of effect did the pandemic have on all of this? Um, well, um, we've been tracking problematic smartphone use for uh, um, for quite a while, maybe maybe ten years or so, and then and then we saw that there were there was quite a jump uh, during the pandemic, and uh, and this may have been because um, things were all shifted on, on online. So a lot of schooling right. was shifted online, lots of work and everything, and so and so people got used to just using their devices quite a bit and. Uh, and kind of the uh, uh, there's a blur between uh, their kind of offline life and their and their online life, and it seemed like this this persisted. I, again, as I said in in the preamble, I found this as a parent to be the ultimate disciplinary tool. You're out of line. I take the phone. It's as simple as that. Why not limit the use of phone? And again, I, I can see how they'd be an advantage, uh, you know, uh, for research and this sort of thing. But there's a time to put them down. Why why are we so reluctant to do that or come up with this sort of plan? Um, so. Uh... Um, um, sometimes people feel this um, fear of missing out when they don't have have their phone. Some people feel um, anxious and, and fretful when they don't have have their phone on them, and and so there are these um, uh, maybe relatively minor negative effects that, that you have from not having your uh, uh, your phone with you. But uh, uh, generally, for most people, 
of reducing their their screen time and uh, uh, reducing their smartphone use will generally have, have positive effects. Where do you think this is going, Jay? Do you think that finally, after so many years, we've realized that something needs to be done? How do you think this is going to go? Um, uh, the kind of trends that, that we're seeing across the world is that this, this problem is still growing and shows, and shows kind of no signs of, of, of slowing down. So um, uh, kind of globally, we can, uh, we can predict that um, the kind of dependence that we have on, uh, on, on our, our technology will, will continue to grow. Um, um, and, and that we have to take more steps, um, either kind of top-down steps from uh, companies or schools making these kind of guidelines or these kind of bottom-up steps. We talk about them as uh, um, individuals trying to reduce their phones to reduce um, some of the negative effects that they have. Uh, why do we cater so much to the kids? Why is this so hard? And by that I mean, and I use this example for my kids, if you're at work and, or you're in a meeting, you can't be on your phone. If you're at work and you're on your phone, your boss is going to have something to say about it if it's not business use. So obviously when these same kids get into the workforce, they're going to get a, a rude awakening. So why do we allow it in an educational situation, but it's not in a work environment? Well, sometimes this depends on, uh, on feasibility. So if, if the kids are, are using their phone, say, um, um, five or six hours a day, uh, uh, which we find pretty common when we run studies on, on these topics, um, then uh, telling them to complete, uh, uh, completely not use their phones at, at, at school or something, this, uh, this may seem very, very foreign to them. Right, um, right. Uh, uh, and then there's the, the compliance issue. If half of them are complying and then half of them uh, um, aren't complying with this, um, it's the group that is complying, and in some way they're being punished by um, feeling like they're missing out on on these kind of social media chats uh, uh, that happen from there. So, uh, lots of this comes down to feasibility and and compliance. What does it say that so much of this generation suffers from FEMO or FOMO, the fear of missing out? Um, well, sometimes, uh, and sometimes we think about this uh, this excessive problematic smartphone use as, as kind of suggesting that there's kind of other problems in society. And, and so we know that it correlates with things like uh, depression and anxiety. And so sometimes people try to avoid uh, negative emotions that they have through their phone. And so, and so the phone might be more of, of kind of the symptom that there's a problem and, and maybe not the primary cause itself. Interesting. Dr. Jay also with us, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Psychology, University of Toronto, Mississauga. The big debate, cell phones in the classrooms. Jay, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciate. Be, uh, much appreciate it. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, multiple things stressing the uh, Canadian and Ontario healthcare system. We remember during the height of the global pandemic, we promised ourselves we were going to fix the system once the many weak links of our much beloved healthcare system were starting to show. We knew we had to fix it. And you might remember the premiers and the prime minister getting together and trying to come, to come up with a solution to stabilize things. And it looked like they did for a while. 
And then, boom, a whole start, a whole pile of people started arriving. And the Ontario Hospital Association says Ontario's rapidly rising population is a direct result, uh, is directly related to the healthcare crisis the lineups we're seeing in ER and such. And oddly enough, uh, Quebec Premier today, or the other day, sent a letter to the Prime Minister. It was released today saying that Quebec is, has reached a breaking point because of too many people coming in and not enough services putting stress on everything from healthcare to housing. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, why and how Canadian Medicare is failing, and senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. So, Sean, I remember talking all through the pandemic, and you know, here's what we needed to do, and it was good to see everybody getting together. And it honestly looked like things were—I don't know if they were getting better, but at least we were focused on what we needed to do. And then, boom, we find ourselves in a in a, a similar situation again, just a few months later. Yeah, it's the most predictable surprise we have every spring, right? You know, the flu season hits us and we hear from the OHA and, and the people on uh, in emergency departments that our departments are overcrowded, our hospitals are overcrowded. And, and so you can set your stopwatch to this every spring in Canada. We hear the same thing. So uh, your thoughts on the Ontario Hospital Association talking about and, you know, the Quebec Premier similarly that we've got a situation where we just don't have enough services for the people that we have. Yeah. So that's a new wrinkle for sure. And I'm glad you highlighted that. I forget the exact numbers. Are we 1.2 million new Canadians this year? And, 1.1. And so, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, around that ballpark. And so for me, it's less about the actual number. It's less about where they're coming from. It's about the core promise that we have given to Canadians, right? The whole basis of Medicare is that you get care regardless of ability to pay. Government took over the health insurance uh, uh, programs in in the late 1960s. They said, listen, people, we're going to take care of it. And you don't have to worry, we will provide the services. And if they're not providing the services, then that's a failure of their fundamental promise to Canadians. And so we are underinsured. That's what concerns me most in all this. Uh, How has this changed post-pandemic? Because again, that brought this to everyone's attention. And perhaps many who thought that our system was flawless found out that it wasn't. Uh, We seem to draw attention to it at that point. Are we still as focused or is this a new issue that has to be dealt with? Well, there's a couple things overlapping. Certainly, there was the bulge in delayed procedures that you know everybody held off during the pandemic. Hospitals were sh- shut down to skeleton services only. And so we're seeing a big bump in the demand for care after that. That's one issue. Um, the second, in- I mean, there we could list probably five or six issues, but that's the one big interesting issue for me. The second one is the they talk about private care, right? We keep hearing private care, private clinics, Doug Ford, private care. And and uh, that I find completely bizarre. We've had 900, over 900 independent health facilities, so-called private facilities, uh, delivering public services in Ontario for the last many number of years. If we heard that we were going to increase, the, we we're going to double the number of family docs in, in, in Ontario, you'd never hear anyone saying, oh my gosh, we're doubling the amount of private care. Of course not. So I, 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 it's a bit depressing for me to hear people using this as a political weapon to say, oh, this is private care because you're moving services out of hospitals. So that's the other wrinkle that we're seeing right now. Didn't we already have this debate, though, in a post-pandemic world? And what we're seeing now are the fixes they promised. 
Yeah, exactly. We, like we, it just, we it did. seems we, we keep having this argument after we've already been through a pandemic and we realize it doesn't work. Status quo doesn't work. We need to change. This was the solution. We're implementing the solution. People are complaining. Yeah, well, um, we, we know that there's a 20 to 40% cost savings for the identical services if they're done in an independent health facility versus if they're done in a hospital. Again, paying for this with your OHIP card, not your credit card. That's from the, uh, the Auditor General. The big change, though, is you're moving services within to an environment that is not heavily unionized, or at least it's not heavily unionized yet. I would be surprised if we don't see union drives in the IHFs after that. And so that's the core here. People are saying, wait a second, we're not going to be able to control exactly what management decides in these IHFs. And so people left of center, which describes most people in the healthcare sector, are, are really concerned about that. Is it accurate to say the people who don't want this change are benefiting from the way it is? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're locked in an iron triangle. I call it the healthcare corporatist iron triangle. So corporatism is just the agreement between labor uh, um, business and government. Right now we have labor and the unions, doctors as the, the so-called business and or doctors and hospitals and then government. And no one agrees to a change unless we all benefit, right? If you get something, I want something. If yeah. you're going to get something and I don't get something, then I'm going to veto the decision. We need to blow up that iron triangle of corporatism. It's been done before elsewhere. We need to do it in Canada. Why won't just, you know, many have said, especially uh, the left-leaning parties will say, no, you just need to add more money to this. It will work if you add more money to it. Well, more money helps everything. <laughs> I mean, more money does helps that make a better Does that make a never, better system, it, But though. it's not going to solve the fundamental problem, right? The yeah, fundamental yeah. problem is we think we can control a whole economy. Healthcare is not a... a, a um, a system. It, it includes pharmaceuticals, technology, um, health, uh, you know, facilities, facility management. And so we have the arrogance to say, hey, you, we can control this whole thing from the center. I mean, it gets to Keynesian uh, economic theory, but basically we think we can tweak and fiddle and make things great for patients. And we've been proving this for the last number of decades that we can't. And yeah. even when we pour in more money than our, than our peers, certainly in the European countries, we're getting worse outcomes and worse service. And, and you know, it's time to, to actually show some humility and be willing to make some fundamental changes, I think. Yeah. Remember the pandemic? Uh, Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald-Lurie Institute. Always a fascinating discussion, Sean. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. We remember, uh, it wasn't that long ago when all of a sudden online gambling, uh, became legal and, uh, many people, uh, jumping on board. You see it everywhere, uh, if you're watching sports, certainly even embedded into the programming itself. But what about gambling sites, both licensed and unlicensed, being used to launder money? Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economist lecturer with Concordia University and here now. Moshe, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much. So tell us, how do criminals use online gaming or gambling to, to launder money? It's not really different than using a conventional bank account. You have one side that puts money into the account, and then you have somebody else takes money directly out of that account, masking it to look like winnings. And so really, if you're not paying attention to what's actually going on in that account, 
uh, say, like the gambling site that's that's monitoring the accounts, if they're not catching what's going on or who's moving the money or where the money's coming from, if they're dressing it up as winning, uh, it's pretty easy to launder money. So in one side, safe bets going out? Um, it's not even necessarily that you're betting. It's merely a matter of that you buy, say, like a, a you got the account. debit card. Yeah, and it's yeah. just that you're using it as the vehicle to put money in. So if you have a, a gambling account, let's say, you could deposit money into your account for the purpose of betting. And then after you've bet, you can withdraw your winnings. Right. Um, the gambling site isn't watching whether you actually use the money to bet or not. So let's say, make it even simpler. Let's just say you deposited the money into account and then you had a change of heart and said, ah, you know what, I need that money to go buy uh, dinner tonight. So it's deposited and withdrawn. Um, but if that money is coming from illegal gains and then the person that's taking it out is not the same person that put it in, you, you've got money laundering happening. And it's, 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 it's exactly because nobody's really watching what's going on in those accounts. Could we not see this coming before we legalized all of this? I mean, were we prepared? It could have been seen. We weren't prepared. Um, you know, the, the fact is that it's always the criminal that's one step ahead of law enforcement, right? So even if you try and close this loophole and say the only way you can withdraw money is from actually using the money for betting purposes, uh, how many legitimate gamblers is this going to race off uh, that don't want that pressure put on them, that they have to use the money? Uh, and criminals are just going to say, all right, where else are people not watching? Because that's where criminal activity operates, is where people aren't watching them. So they'll just look for the next uh, available opportunity. Is this just the cost of doing business if you're in this if you're in this industry? It is. You could raise that cost by saying that all right, we're now going to put onus on the gambling websites to to provide some sort of information. Uh, mm. But sometimes that information comes after the fact, right? And so, what's accomplished by telling you after the fact that a now closed account was used to launder money? You could place limits on how much money can go through. But even there, criminals are going to say, all right, you're telling me that I can only deposit $50 at a time. If I want to launder a million dollars, then all yeah. that means is that I have to do a lot of transactions. And guess what? They're going to hire some grunt who's going to sit there all day and deposit 50, withdraw 50, deposit 50, withdraw 50. So you're always going to have a problem with this. Uh, I think it's just one of those things that uh, even if you close down gambling, then it's going to become mainstream bank accounts where maybe people aren't watching as closely. So uh, the fact that there is so many accounts and so much money changing hands, uh, is it that easy? To some extent, right? Um, and it sometimes becomes a problem of just the largeness of the number of accounts that it just yeah. becomes impossible to supervise. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't seem to have that problem as much within the conventional banking sector. We don't seem to have that problem as much within, say, e-trading and online buying and selling of shares. So it might just be that in the newness of all of this, uh, they haven't put in place the safeguards uh, and the reporting responsibilities and the possible fines that come with allowing this activity to uh, operate. So I think it's one of those things that you're going to see now law enforcement try and catch up with the criminals and close loopholes and just say, all right, now come up with your next plan. Um, this talks about licensed and unlicensed sites. Are there that many unlicensed sites out there? Well, technically, anything that's offshore is unlicensed, right? If you're right. gambling in Canada or if you're gambling in Ontario, for example, then not only does it have to be through a licensed site, but it actually has to be in Ontario. So uh, if you go outside of Ontario, say, into Quebec and try and use your Ontario gambling site, it's going to say, sorry, I can tell that you're not in Ontario. You're not gambling unless you want to use a VPN. But notice that criminals would have no problems using a VPN to mask where they are as a way to try and access the site out of, out of the jurisdiction.
Is this any different than what we see going on in casinos where money is being laundered it's, it, it, when we expanded all of that? No, money laundering is money laundering, right? It's merely taking illegal gotten gains and trying to whiten it up and make it look good. So wherever you can find somebody that's not paying attention, you're going to see money laundering happen. It's just a matter of that each time somebody's alerted to, hey, were you looking over here? Um, that's what I mean. We close that loophole and then it's just where else are people not looking? We cannot have prying eyes in all corners of all websites of all activity 24-7. And, and so it's always going to exist. Uh, and you can bet that what's happening is that criminal activity is saying, we can do this now, but they've already scoped out what their next site is going to be or what their next activity is going to be because they anticipate that at some point they are going to get caught out. And so that's why they're always one step ahead of law enforcement. Uh, gambling industry, uh, especially uh, vulnerable because of this lack of over oversight? Um, there might be a short-term backlash, but I think that that genie is now out of bottle, and it's not going to be put back in. It's going to be maybe tightened up, and it's going to be maybe made a little more foolproof, but it's going to be impossible to clean up any more than it's impossible to clean up the, the conventional banking sector, that you're always going to hear the occasional scandal that pops up here or there. Um, I don't even know that there's necessarily the appetite to try and rein in gambling now that everybody's realized that it hasn't caused the disintegration of society, and it hasn't caused quite the problems that people might have uh, predicted 20 years ago, then it really is just a matter of, all right, let's work within the existing system rather than try and overthrow it entirely. So there's no real reason to remove this or, or uh, change it in any way other than, of course, adding these security provisions. Right. And it, it's understanding then that, you know, there's going to be certain responsibility then that comes maybe on the gambler themselves is that you have to disclose where you're originating site comes from, or it has to come from one of the big six banks within the, the country here, that the money can only be withdrawn to a designated site where it's verified that it's not from illegal gotten gains, right? But uh, again, other than raising the cost, uh, there's really nothing that's going to be done about that. And the only thing to watch for is that if you raise the cost, that's probably going to affect things like the payouts, right? So you know that gambling is not $1 comes in and $1 goes out. There's money that's being uh, shaved off for the people running the sites so that they right. can pay their bills, what might happen is if you start raising their costs, they're going to say, all right, the spread between winning and losing bets might have to get a little wider because we now have this extra cost. That might scare off some gamblers to go to unlicensed sites or go elsewhere where maybe nobody cares quite as much about it. So that's one of the things, too, that is going to have to be considered because this has now become a source of revenue for provincial government. Your thoughts, uh, Moshe, on how this is all uh, expanded? I mean, it just seems once it was announced, it, it's, it's exploded. You, you virtually see it on every sports broadcast in some way, very much embedded into it. What are your thoughts on how this has flourished? You know, this is the nature of any new industry that pops up. So whether it's the tech industry or whether it's the gambling industry, right, there's this instant race. It's almost like the Wild West that everybody's just mm. running to state ground. I think at the end of the day, the problem is that there's only going to be one, maybe two gambling sites because part of the way this works is much the same way financial markets work. If you have one market that can provide all services to all people, that gives them scale and that gives them kind of the ability to spread their costs among the greatest number of people. So what's happening right now is that they're competing with each other to see which one's going to be the survivor or which two might be the survivors. And so that's why they're moving so aggressively is they want to just bombard you until the point that you say, I can only use this site or I can only use that site because uh, that's the place to be. And so that's why they were even hiring athletes to basically almost violate the, the code that uh, even though you're not supposed to gamble, you can somehow promote gambling even though you're not doing it yourself. 
Moshe Lander with us, senior economist, lecturer with Concordia University, talking about online gambling sites and how they are used by those wanting to launder money. As always, Moshe, thank you for the time. Be well. Anytime. Happy back soon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from former teacher Mr. Lowe, and he says via email, perhaps now is the time, like his father did many years ago, for our PM to take a walk in the snow, for the betterment of Canada and Canadians to call it a day. Thank you, Justin, for your service, Mr. Lowe. Keep right, accept the pass. (laughs) 